From Pickfair Village in Los Angeles, it's the Mind Over Music Podcast. your pal Rob Matsuda. Today we're going to talk about classical music in order to pose this question. Assuming the three greatest composers in the history of Western classical music are Bach, Mozart, and Beethoven, the dudes that always seem to occupy the top three spots on that list, then who is the fourth? My friend and co-host Jeremy Gillian is going to join me in order to weigh in on this topic. Maybe we can come up with some answers. Let's welcome him back. Well, hello, Jeremy. Hey, Robert. How are you? It's good to see you again. And you. This time out, we're going to talk about classical music, and we are going to be discussing who the three greatest composers might be. Uh, this is something we were talking about recently, so can you elaborate on the criteria we're going to use? Well, we've always wondered if there was a general consensus as to whom most people would consider to be the three greatest classical composers of all time. And I don't mean classical with a capital C. Yes, that refers to a period of only about 70 years. Really to all Western so-called art music from the Middle Ages through to the present time. Yeah, we didn't care about learning who people's three favorite composers were. To us, that was subjective and, and it's a not especially interesting question. We'd have to just accept our answers and ergo, that's the end of the subject. But to find out who the greatest three are requires people to set aside their own personal tastes and apply some objective criteria. So first, we started asking a few friends from diverse musical backgrounds, ranging from professional musicians to non-musicians, to tell us if they had to pick the three greatest composers of all time, who would those be? Well, the answers didn't surprise us because they tended to corroborate our own choices, and those happen to be, in no particular order, Bach, Beethoven, and Mozart. We then expanded this small survey to a slightly larger Facebook poll of about 70 people and garnered similar results. I'm not exactly sure how the science behind polls works, but I suspect had we expanded the poll to even greater numbers, we would again have received a similar result. So, we had arrived at the three greatest composers in history but still felt that we needed to subject them to a few tests to justify our high rankings. Well, isn't that the height of arrogance? <laughs> We're going to analyze these top three guys according to popularity, quality, prolificacy, in other words, how much they wrote, memorability, the so-called hook factor, their personal stamper style, and influence on future music. Why don't we just take Bach, for instance? and we'll talk about his memorability or his hooks. Can you say something about that, Jer? Well, how about if I just uh, play something? Play something, yeah.
Sound familiar? Very. How about this? How about this one? Ah, oh, sounds vaguely familiar. You might have even played that one, taking piano lessons. And what about? And how about this last one? Now that's a trick question. Yeah, that's not Bach. But it was sure influenced by Bach. It certainly sounds like Bach. Which goes back to the category of influence. His music was extremely influential. Uh, when we learned to write music in, in college, we learned to write harmony in the manner of Bach, how to harmonize four-part chorales. When we learn counterpoint, we learn how to write a fugue in the style of Bach. So Bach's influence on all musicians and on all Western music who came after him is extremely high. And that touches on personal stamp or style, because even though that's not actually by Bach, it's the rock group Proko Harm, it sounds like Bach. Immediately strikes the listener as a piece by Bach. Yeah, it's actually a, sort of a, a hybrid of two melodies. That piece, which was the Sleeper's Awake chorale prelude, and his famous air on a G-string, which is... So that line from Proko Harum is kind of an ingenious borrowing of those two melodies of Bach to create a third influence line. You know, he conflates the two melodies. Exactly. But the, his influence is everywhere from music students in college to British rock groups of the 1960s. So the influence is wide-reaching. So Bach is memorable. He's obviously popular. He certainly wrote a lot, went over a thousand works. And the quality, I think it's widely established that his works are on the highest level. Yeah, and for him to be one of the top three, quality is assumed. And we will say right now, even before we talk about them, that Mozart and Beethoven get the highest marks in terms of quality. You know, being the top three composers of all time, how could they get anything but? Even in their own marks. lifetime, all three of the composers were recognized as being great, if not the greatest. Next up, Beethoven. I think I might have heard of him. of name recognition, you can't get greater than uh, Beethoven because you have Einstein, you have Shakespeare, and then in the world of classical music, Beethoven as this, you know, kind of demigod that's recognized by everybody. 
wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Everyone from uh, Alex in Clockwork Orange Alex in to Clockwork Schroeder Orange. in Peanuts comic strips. He almost becomes like shorthand. His name is shorthand for, for musical greatness. Indeed. And there's also a street called Beethoven Street in Mar Vista. Yeah, I know. Yes, I know that That's street. an L.A. reference. Uh, well, well, let's talk about uh, Ludwig a little bit. In terms of popularity, I think we've established that. He's recognized. He's got the hook factor. I mean, the Fifth Symphony, that's maybe the greatest hook music. What about this one? Ever hear of that one? Uh, it rings a bell. Indeed. And, uh, I mean, if you've ever been subjected to piano lessons, I think you know that, that melody. You do, and then there's some other melodies that you've probably heard. Let's hear them. What about this one? That's a nice string patch you have there. That's the Pastoral Symphony, number six. That's right, yeah. And um, so there's just so many familiar tunes in Beethoven from very famous passages in his sonatas, like the Moonlight Sonata everyone knows, to another lyrical slow movement. Barry Manilow wrote that. Well, he could have adapted it somehow. I it's, mean, you uh, could, I could hear some pop lyrics to that. Yeah, Billy Joel. So Beethoven definitely had the hook factor going on in a lot of his music as well as, but he was probably better known for taking one little idea, you know, and developing and, and twisting and turning those couple of notes into every possible permutation that they could be twisted and turned into. Uh, he could squeeze a lot of musical genius out of those few notes. And he did it in practically every work. And yet he was so hard on himself, and that's where the quality factor <laughs> comes in, because he set such a high bar for himself. And in doing so, he set a very high bar for people who came after him, like Brahms. Well, I think our three geniuses, our three top three, all had different methods of working. We all know that Mozart's pieces were almost conceived in a perfect form in his head before he even scribbled them down on a page. So it was pure genius in Mozart's case. Beethoven, you can really see the struggle. Composition wasn't an especially simple or easy process for Beethoven. He really worked hard to get what he wanted, and you can see the evidence of that when you look at his sketchbooks. Oh, his manuscripts could be just an ugly scrawl. Right, and there's so many versions until he was happy with the one that he wanted to release. Oh, he was very hard on himself. 
Absolutely. Now we can see that Beethoven and Mozart's processes were almost opposite. Just the facile genius Mozart getting it down in final form right away and Beethoven struggling. Whereas Bach was sort of, I guess, a combination of the two. He had kind of that natural genius like Mozart, but he also, since his music was so complicated and contrapuntal, he really had to do the math while working out a lot of those details or, or just the structures would collapse. Yeah, you suspect it wasn't such an easy thing for him at yeah. times. Now, I don't think we have the sketchbooks of Bach. If there were mm -hmm. sketchbooks, they haven't survived like Beethoven's have. But if there were, I, I suspect you'd see some scrawlings. No, mind over Mozart. What do you want to say about this guy? Oh, there's so much. Yeah. Three. <laughs> one of the top three and one of the great prodigies in all of classical music yeah, history. Yeah, when you think about the word prodigy, I mean, that is the first name that comes to mind. Yeah. I was told that the, strictly the word prodigy is only used to describe musicians and chess players. You could have said that Bobby Fischer was a prodigy. And then there's Mozart. There could be expanded to cover other areas, but I always heard it was Certainly. just musicians and chess players who can be referred to as prodigies. And Mozart would be the original prodigy. A six-year-old kid who can write operas and symphonies, you know, almost with the hand of a master. He was precocious, but he also continued to develop into a mature artist. We've speculated about what would happen if Mozart had lived a little bit longer or a lot longer. Would he move ahead musically? Would he become a romantic composer or would he actually extend the length of the classical period into the 19th That's century? That's one of these great questions. But as far as the, what about the hook factor and the memorability? He's got factor? hooks, man. And also, what about the variety factor? Absolutely right, because he's got operas, symphonies, all kinds of chamber music. He's got sonatas. Not he's only does he concertos. have operas, he has four of the greatest operas ever composed. When you think about the Magic Flute, Don Giovanni, Cosi Fantuti, and Marriage of Figaro. I mean, people rank those among the greatest operas ever written. And if that wasn't enough, he'd have the abduction from Seraglio, right. uh, La Clemenza de Tito, and Idomeneo, not to mention the Juvenalia. So you see that discounting the last four great operas, his other stuff was really, really good too. So you're talking about quality control. And what about this one? Another little kid's piece, right? deceptively simple. I've heard that Mozart's music is too simple for a beginner and too difficult for a virtuoso. I like that because it kind of lets you know how perfect the music is and there's nowhere to hide in it. In order to play this music right, it just has to be so perfectly played. And the notes themselves, when you look at it on paper, aren't really that hard. Just a bunch of 16th notes and 8th notes and Alberti bass rhythms. But that's where music transcends the notation. Because on page, it looks sort of black and white. Here's another great one as far as the memorability factor goes. 
Dun, 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 dun. You remember that one from Amadeus, right? And that's what people can do with a lot of Mozart's music. One phrase sort of suggests another, which kind of suggests another, and before you know it, you have the whole piece down. Yeah, you're really in touch with his genius. You could anticipate the next phrase. I think we might have made a case for our top three composers, but the title of our podcast is called Who's in the Fourth Seat? Now, with our, the poll that we gave, we got quite a few votes for Mozart, Bach, and Beethoven. They were the winners in all our little informal polls. But then, after that, when we wanted to continue, it dropped off. The voting dropped off from about, you know, I think in the first poll, we had about 17 for Bach, 16 for uh, Beethoven, and 16 or 15 for Mozart. And then it dropped off to like, one vote for a composer or two someone would get two votes so that kind of confirmed to us that Mozart, Beethoven and Bach should be in the top three but then we had to ask ourselves who gets to sit in the fourth seat if we were to expand our list a bit we've established who the top three big cheese composers are but who are the rest who are these other great composers who don't quite make it to the top three? Jeremy, we've compiled a list. Why don't you say something about them? Well, first let me just say that these are all great composers and they deserve to be on someone's list of the greatest composers of all time. We want to talk, just name a few other names. Chopin, Schumann, Mendelssohn, Liszt, Dvorak, Grieg, Stravinsky, Copland, Gershwin, Bernstein, Rachmaninoff, Monteverdi, Puccini, Verdi, Mahler, Rossini, Elgar, Vaughan Williams, Debussy, Ravel, and Grieg. Let's start with four or five composers on that list. Well, let me start with a name that might surprise you and maybe less familiar than some of the others on the list. And that's the early Baroque composer Monteverdi. And he is important and deserves to be on this list because he's really the first composer to indicate what instruments would play what parts in his scores. In other words, he is really the father of orchestration and the first important composer of opera, really. Did he invent operas? Well, he wasn't the first composer to write an opera. There were a few that came before, but his opera, L'Orfeo, is probably the first really well-known opera that is still performed by big opera companies who actually occasionally will do Baroque productions, and Orfeo's performed it. But just the fact that he was so innovative in his style of writing for instruments especially, that he really deserves to be on the list. Okay, who's next? Well, why don't we jump ahead now several centuries and talk about the first truly important American composer. That would be Copland. He wrote music on American themes such as Billy the Kid and Appalachian Spring, Lincoln Portrait, Rodeo, his fanfare for the common man, his Dust Bowl opera, The Tender Land, purely instrumental works like the clarinet concerto and the piano variations, 
and his organ symphony, symphony number three. Then there were the film scores to Of Mice and Men, The Red Pony, and The Heiress. He was just very prolific and wrote in a variety of styles and really, really is up there on the list of great composers. Uh, you have the adjective Copelandesque when people are describing works by other composers who sound like Copeland. What does that mean, Copelandesque? Well, one way he created a, a really unique and identifiable style was the way he would actually write his chords and score them for orchestra. He wrote them with a lot of space in between in a very open style, which kind of conjures up the big sky country and the wide open spaces of the, the plains and the prairie. So really you get a literal sense of the wide open spaces of America by the way Copeland would actually go about writing his music. It's so sort of those built wide intervals on the printed page translated to a wide open space in terms of sound. Yes, pretty ingenious, I'd say. And that translated again into what we call Americana. Kind of the father of Americana, yes. of American music. Next, we have a towering figure of the 20th century, Igor Stravinsky. Towering is right, and he had three main periods. And the first period probably was the most famous when he created his probably most famous lasting works, and that would be the, his Russian nationalist period. After studying with Rimsky-Korsakov, he would write The Firebird, and then Petrushka and The Rite of Spring. And these were just mammoth pieces in, well, writing for the ballet, and they're not as danced as often as they're performed live, but innovations in instrumentation, in harmony, especially in rhythm and meter. They were just so influential, and that, that's the Russian nationalist period. Some of those works, like um, The Rite of Spring, shocked audiences. Well, I mean, there was a famous scandal yeah, at the, the riot. premiere of that. Well, let's continue. Then the second period was his neoclassical period, where he went back into the past and used techniques from the 18th century and wrote pieces like Pulcinella and his Octet for Winds, the opera The Rake's Progress, was influenced by Mozart. There was a symphony of psalms, an octet for winds, violin concerto. And that would be the neoclassical period. So, sounding a bit like Mozart except with 20th century harmonies. And unusual ways of scoring exactly. for orchestra. So there'd be no mistaking it for actual 18th century music, but you can hear the hallmarks right, throughout. Right. And then what came after neoclassical? Well, this would be his later period after, I think, moving to Los Angeles <laughs> and maybe being a little influenced by... Our city. Sounds that he you know, heard here on the West Coast. The Agon Ballet, 
And this is what period it's, it's called? This would be called, I guess, his serial or almost 12-tone period. Right. Uh, which was a little different than Schoenberg, who also came to Los Angeles. work in Los Angeles. So he had three distinct periods. And can I just finish Stravinsky by relating a personal story? Please do. Thank you. When I was a young piano student, probably about eight years old, maybe eight or nine, my teacher, who was very involved in the whole music scene of West Los Angeles, took me to see Stravinsky as a very old man. This was probably about four or five years before he died, to see him conduct at the Beverly Hilton Hotel. And the impressions I got as a young, young music student was of this little, feeble, frail old man who had to be helped up to the podium by an assistant. And then when he began to conduct his music, and I believe what he conducted was his fireworks music, not to be confused with the firebird. And he may have conducted something else, I can't remember. When he began conducting, the years just flew away and he began to conduct with such, you know, vibrancy and strength and energy. It was amazing, you know, guttural grunts. The Beverly Hilton Hotel didn't have a real concert hall. They had a grand ballroom that was sort of set up. I, I don't even recall there being a stage. Uh, it was just at one end of the room, an orchestra, and I'm not sure if it was sort of an ad hoc orchestra made up of local players or, probably yeah or if it was the la phil i don't think so but all i remember is this little old man you know walking up there and so frail and then began conducting and all of a sudden you could see decades just slipped away and he conducted with such passion and fervor and then when it was all over he reverted back to the little old man. He kind of shriveled the up aide again. The came yeah. back up and handed him his cane or his crutches or whatever yeah. he, he was on at that point. And he kind of walked off. And it was just, that'll always stick with me, that experience of seeing mm -hmm. Igor Stravinsky conduct. All right, those were the runners-up. And now we've come to the final list of contenders for the fourth seat. Who are they, Jeremy? Well, after much deliberation, we finally arrived at the five candidates for the fourth seat. And here they are in alphabetical order. Johannes Brahms, George Frederick Handel, Josef Haydn, Franz Schubert, and Peter Ilyich Tchaikovsky. In chronological order, Let's start with Handel. As long as Christmas and Easter are celebrated, Handel's Messiah is going to be performed. Probably the greatest oratorio ever written and includes the world's most famous chorus, the Hallelujah. In addition, he wrote operas, trio sonatas, keyboard suites, large orchestral suites such as the famous water music and the royal fireworks music. And unlike Bach, who wrote all of his music in a Germanic Lutheran style, Handel was a cosmopolitan composer who wrote in German, Italian, and English styles. Many people prefer their Baroque music served up the way Handel served it, and frankly find it a lot less of a slog than much of Bach. I, I tend to agree with that, Jeremy. 
I mean, no disrespect to Bach, but there's something very appealing to me about the directness and simplicity of Handel. Even when he's writing in counterpoint, it's less complicated than Bach. Bach is, is awe-inspiring in his complexity because it's, it's like watching God's nervous system or some incredibly complicated computer circuit. And as impressive as that is, it could be very tiring on the listener. It's very daunting. And all of that counterpoint isn't supporting a melody that you could hang your hat on. Right, even when Handel is writing counterpoint, you can pick out the main tune pretty much. Exactly. Where Bach, I'd say, is a little bit more democratic in how he assigns musical lines. Your ear has to constantly switch from the soprano to the alto to the bass to in between. Who has the tune at any given time? It demands an awful lot of the ear and can literally fatigue the listener. Well, I don't want to fatigue our listeners, so let's just go on to the next composer. Franz Joseph Haydn. And when you're called the father of the symphony, when you're known as the father of the string quartet, and pretty much the inventor of sonata allegro form, which if you don't know this, plays an important part in classical music. That alone should qualify you for membership in this very elite greatest composers club. So the fact that Haydn was sequestered away as a court musician for much of his career forced him to develop a personal style independent of outside influences. You know, his tunes might not be as well known as Mozart's or Beethoven's, but for those who know and love them, like me, they're held in as high esteem as those two other giants. He also had a great musical sense of humor and was purported to be a really nice guy. Our next finalist is Franz Schubert. Of all the great composers, I don't think anyone is associated with writing beautiful melodies more than Schubert. His over 600 leader are considered the towering achievement in the field of art song composition, and lyrical melodies abound even in his instrumental work. There's strong evidence, too, that if he had lived longer, he was only bloody 31 when he died, he would have contributed greatly also to the field of opera. And like Mozart, who also died extremely young, I guess we'll never know what might have laid down the road for these guys. Now Robert's going to make the case for Brahms. Brahms was the great perfectionist of classical music. He just held himself to the highest standards. Brahms destroyed a great many of his early works. And when you think of the romantic cliche of the tortured artist flinging his manuscripts into the fire, well, th that was Brahms. He didn't complete his first symphony until he was well over the age of 40. He just wasn't satisfied with quality because, you see, he had this intimidating shadow of Beethoven hanging over him. So when he finally did premiere the first symphony, it was often referred to as Beethoven's 10th. And finally, Tchaikovsky. It would appear that melody and accessibility have been upgraded as important values in music in recent years, as Tchaikovsky's reputation as one of history's greatest composers has continued to grow. 
It should never even have been questioned as far as we're concerned because Tchaikovsky is undoubtedly a master in the areas of the symphony, concerto, opera, chamber music, and of course, dance, where without his contributions, the ballet world would not have the heart and soul of its repertoire. We've reached the part of the show where we've gone over all the contenders. We've talked about the five finalists. And uh, I got to ask you the $10,000 question. Who do you think should be sitting in that fourth seat? You know, I've thought long and hard about this. I've really wrestled with this question. And I yeah. can't come up with an answer. I cannot one above the other yeah. and I'm beginning to wonder is there even a point to to try to do that what do you think I totally agree with you every one of those five guys belongs in that seat so I can't come up with you know a definitive answer I think it's unanswerable I don't want to play God when it comes down to determining who's greater between Haydn, Schubert, Brahms, and Tchaikovsky, and extending that to the other 20 that we gave some lip service yeah. to, and beyond those, to the really countless amount of great composers who've contributed to our lives and enhanced our, our whole experience by their great music. Full disclosure, I think we both went into this knowing that it was kind of a fool's errand and we kind of come up with this result that it's an unanswerable question. At the beginning of the show, we were talking about how asking people who their favorite composers was not an interesting question, but at the same time, it's the most important question. It really is. People are individuals just like these composers are individuals. And of course, everybody's going to have composers that they prefer to listen to. Greatness is overrated a bit. Greatness could be overrated. It's not always required, and oftentimes it's not what is wanted. And it would be a pity if any one of these composers that we named or didn't name didn't exist. Or that people felt compelled to listen to them just because of their greatness. Another full disclosure, there's a lot of composers that I listened to that weren't mentioned at all during this podcast that I probably listen to more often than I do the top five, or dare I say, the top three greatest. So I guess the takeaway is that greatness is fine, but it isn't necessary in the long run. Greatness has its place. Absolutely. So, as far as personal favorites are concerned, you like what you like, you hold certain music close to your heart, and that's the way to proceed through life. And, as we always like to say, we might not have had any ultimate answers to your questions. We hope we've stimulated some good thought and Maybe you'll look into this question further, and maybe now we have a new Facebook page. You want to extend the discussion over to there. We're delighted to continue that with you. Yes, please like us on Facebook. I really enjoyed this. I can't wait for our next show. For Mind Over Music, once again, Robert Matsuda. And Jeremy Gilling. See you next time.
Mind Over Music is a Sleeping Godhead production. <laughs>